lady, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness. From the ones who walk in light, light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes. Today is April thirteenth, two thousand and four. Are you ready for more? Yes. What a day! Listening to Janet Reno at dawn today, talking about share. Yes, boys, share the info. Don't keep it all to yourselves. Oh, lordy me! I have here a copy of um, Street Spirit. It's a newspaper sold by the homeless here in the East Bay. The March issue has a, a collection of quotations, Women's Reflections on War. It's put together by an old pal of mine, Rosalie Maggio. Uh, it's Poor Leonard's Almanac. Um, now, it's Leonard... Um, Leonard is the one who um, puts this together every month, and he called Rosalie, and she put together uh, this selection of women's words and... As I was driving down here on the bus, yes, trying to cheer up, I read these and I thought, here's the one that fits what was going on the air today. Uh, it's Catherine Ann Porter called American Statement the days before, uh, back in 1942, right? She writes, the people who are doing the work and the fighting and the dying and those who are doing the talking are not at all the same people. Yes, indeed, we know that Raisa Gorbachev in 1991, um, the late Raisa Gorbachev wrote, The calamity of war, wherever, whenever, and upon whom it descends, is a tragedy for the whole of humanity. Indeed, no man is an island, uh, you know, the, the big... Uh, what was it, Jeanette Rankin's line, the best line of all, the biggest one. You can no more win a war than you can win an earthquake. And, of course, Hannah Arendt. Yes, like all action, the practice of violence changes the world, but the most probable change is a more violent world. Uh, how to make things worse. Mm-hmm. Agatha Christie, 1977, writes... One is left with a horrible feeling now that war settles nothing. That to win a war is as disastrous as to lose one. I would, of course, add that there is no such thing. Yeah, you can no more win a war than an earthquake. Um, here we go. Fifties, Zelda Popkin writes, No war can end war except a total war which leaves no human creature on earth. Each war creates the causes 
of war. Hate, desire for revenge, and have-nots, desperate with need, and she goes on to write about uh, what I would call the seeds of every conflict, um, uh, finding the soil for the next war. I was watching the um, cable network this weekend, two hours of the, uh, the reflections ten years later in Rwanda, Absolutely unbearable piece of programming documentary. Uh, the faces of those women saying after ten years that, of course, the dead are already dead and uh, uh, they're still dead. It's 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 impossible to look at those faces and uh, not ask yourself, what does it mean to be human? Uh, what was it they said? Eight thousand a day. 800,000 dead. And now, of course, they have to live next door to the, to the people who killed their families. Um, okay. One more here. Martha Gellhorn. You remember Martha? She's married to Hemingway. That's what, uh, got her in the big book. The Face of War. Back in 1959, she writes, from the earliest wars of men to our last heartbreaking worldwide effort, all we could do was kill ourselves. Now we are able to kill the future. It's so hard to explain to, um, to moderns that uh, these are eco-disasters that we are uh, creating a toxic world uh, and it's not just what it does to humankind, but uh, what it is doing to the earth. Here's one more from Christos, uh, the artist, 1991. How many are dying from the taxes I've paid with my tired hands? One more here, just one more. Adrian Rich writes in 1993... War is bestowed like electroshock on the depressive nation. Thousands of volts jolting the system and artificial galvanizing. One effect of which is loss of memory. Mm -hmm. War comes at the end of the 20th century, and I would add at the beginning of the 21st, as absolute failure of imagination, scientific and political. That was Adrian Rich, of course. And uh, one more, Muriel Lester writes, The first casualty in every war is truth. Yes, indeed. Check out your local street spirit. This is the March issue. You might ask the people selling it if they have copies of March. I'm sure they're selling April by now. But Women's Reflections on War is a keeper. I also kept the issue before that, Women's Reflections on Poverty, uh, indeed, Janet Reno, share the information. I hoped today to turn away from politics, to try after these hours of listening to the filibustering, the talk, 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 to talk a little bit about, uh, oh, um, a literary saint, a secular humanist, the American poet and prophet, uh, Emily Dickinson, I thought it's April for gosh sakes, can't we go out under the trees? I walked down here today and I walked past the Zen Center, um, 
that holy place, and then the Thai Cultural Center and the Buddhist uh, Thai Temple. It's on Russell Street near where I live, and I saw the monks in their their um, what color yellow is that? That wonderful rusty yellow. I thought, what a wonderful. The wonderful life they must have. What do I know? They probably have all sorts of headaches and problems. But what I notice is that at this season of the year, they dig up everything and set out all these beautiful new plants, mostly roses and peonies and all this gorgeous uh, gardening right out to the edge of the street where they know that the locals are going to muck it up. Uh, seems to me so hopeful and helpful. I'm the sort of person who still keeps uh, the plant that I bought four years ago in hopes that it will revive. It isn't quite dead, you know. <laughs> I have three or four plants on my back balcony, and that's about my only effort. Uh, talk about uh, pessimist, yes. Let me tell you a little bit about Emily Dickinson. I got to Emily Dickinson by a cir- circuitous route this week. I was trying to get away from Mel Gibson's movie, which I reviewed for the Thursday morning show. Uh, that's at 8.20, Thursday morning. And I got into what I would call the uh, the layers of sadism. And I thought, why is it that when a poet, when a, a uh, transcendent poet like Emily Dickinson deals with darkness, we get something extremely beautiful. And when Mel Gibson does uh, try to look on the dark side, when he goes into uh, his sadistic self, finds his inner sadist, uh, uh, the result is simply slaughter splattered all over the screen. Emily Dickinson has a famous line. Uh, she wrote, I like a look of agony because I know it's true. This is a a line I've used all my life to define honesty. Uh, Whether or not you take pleasure, uh, you know, whether or not you take a sadistic pleasure in the look of agony, that's another question. I remember Camille Paglio used um, that line as evidence that Emily Dickinson was sadistic. (laughs) I always wonder, what did Emily Dickinson mean when she wrote, My life had stood... A loaded gun. These are thought rhymes. They have been my Zen koans all my life. Every Easter, I come back to Emily Dickinson searching for a resurrection. You know, plunge back into poetry, into the erotic, into the great mystery. April is the cruelest month, give or take a week or two in late October, But it is the time when we come alive once more, like it or not. We revive the emotions, you know. We get resurrected. Mm -hmm. These days, when the fear of feeling is everywhere around us, it's harder than ever to, uh, you know, to let go of the rope, to let go of rational order, to just... Sing and dance in the moonlight, you know, the way our pagan mothers did. Um, of course, Mel Gibson uh, doesn't do that. He has Christ's resurrection. Uh, it's Well, he wants him to revenge his own death. Uh, 
Last week I was reading the D.H. Lawrence spin on the life of Christ, the one in which Christ does not die but survives his ordeal on the cross and goes on to find a life, well, uh, a rebirth, with the goddess of Isis, he being the uh, wounded Osiris. She puts him back together again. That's D.H. Lawrence's spin on the Jesus story. There are hundreds of spins. Uh, in any case, uh, I do know now that you can't make poetry out of thought. Uh, poetry is passion. Now, the nature of the passion will depend on the quality of your heart, your mind. Uh, and I'm not sure... Linear thought must be seduced by wild mind, by the fires of ecstasy. Emily Dickinson was a Delphic oracle in her songs. She makes mind music. She hears the grass growing. She writes, Witchcraft is wiser than we. The conventional Christianity of her time was not her cup of tea. Um, she writes, I do not respect doctrines. They, her family, uh, there in Amherst in the 19th century, you remember. Emily Dickinson states are 1830 to 1886. They, she writes, are religious, except me. They address an eclipse every morning, whom they call their father. <laughs> She goes on to describe a woman uh, who uh, has an awakening in the church, you know, who's doing a rebirthing, and uh, uh, <laughs> she says that she supposes that this woman, Miss Mrs. Sweetser, yes, uh, does it to intimidate Antichrist. But uh, yes, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess, I guess my mother was a. a, a what was it? A follower of Emily Dickinson, yes, one of her acolytes. And her views on religion were much the same. Uh, Emily Dickinson wrote that her business was circumference. She read George Eliot's novel, Middlemarch. And she says that after that she was convinced that the mysteries of human nature surpass the mysteries of redemption. Dickinson was searching for the ineffable. She writes, Impossibility, like wine, exhilarates the man who tastes it. Possibility is flavorless. <laughs> well, the way Gertrude Stein put it is, quote, If a thing can be done, why do it? For both these American poets, consciousness is to the soul as syllable is to sense. These women could be sensual and cerebral in the same sentence. They know the gun is loaded. They know that thought and feeling are not separate, that mind and body are part of the same package. Yes. Mel Gibson was on CNN this weekend, and he was upset because uh, the uh, modern church, he says, no longer... Uh, really gets into transubstantiation. <laughs> 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 
Mel is a literalist. I keep saying to myself, like Hamlet to the gravedigger, how absolute the knave is. Yes. Uh, he believes in blood, blood and myth. Uh, what he would call reality. Yes, he keeps saying, uh, it's what really happened. Christ died for all of us, he says. And then he says he loves the Jews, that he prays for them. Anyway, uh, Emily Dickinson wrote um, back in 1870. She wrote, if I read a book, and if it makes my whole body so cold, no fire ever can warm me. I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. And I would footnote here my own uh, opinion, which is uh, that Mel Gibson's work is not poetry. Uh, it's just sadism, uh, stuffy as things were back in Amherst. Uh, Emily Dickinson could write about ecstasy in living. She knew what uh, passion was, what suffering was. She suffered most, I think, um, well, perhaps her love for her brother's wife, Susan Gilbert, was her uh, main agony. She had a fierce relationship with Susan Gilbert. Uh, check out the biography by Richard B. Sewell, written 1974. That's still my favorite biography of Emily Dickinson. Uh, the two women quarreled on the subject of religion, and it seems that Susan was... A literalist, an absolutist. <laughs> and Emily Dickinson writes, Though in that last day the Jesus Christ you love remark he does not know me, there is a darker spirit will not disown its child. Now, whether or not, whether or not you think that Emily Dickinson was talking about the demonic depends on your point of view. Uh, I, I think that it's a mistake to be afraid of the darker spirit. Uh, certainly Emily wasn't afraid of the dark. But it is difficult sometimes to understand where she's coming from. She writes, I see New England Lee. Her school was the Amherst Academy. She entered Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, but she suddenly became very low in health and withdrew, living always in her brick house. Oh, yes, I identify with that. She stayed within the grounds of her home. She just went deeper and deeper into the house. Uh, if the doorbell rang, uh, she said that people uh, came to the door and they said, uh, What? <laughs> so she restricted her uh, guests, her questioners. Uh, she found her father to be, well, Higginson was a friend of hers. Thomas Wentworth Higginson is the guy who writes most about her. And he says that her father was thin, dry, and speechless. Uh, Emily obviously loved her father, but she writes, My father only reads on Sunday. He reads lonely and rigorous books. I have a brother and a sister, 
That was Lavinia, born 1833. My mother does not care for thought. Father is too busy with his briefs to notice what we do. He buys me many books and begs me not to read them. He fears they joggle the mind. In 1874, Emily's father died, and she wrote, Though it is many nights, my mind never comes home. A year later, her mother became an invalid and suffered paralysis until she died. Oh, gee whiz, eight years later in 1882. She writes, We were never intimate, mother and children, while she was our mother. When she became our child, the affection came. I study Victorian Americans because uh, I think they have a lot to teach us today. I don't pity Emily Dickinson. Um, oh, her physical ailments were certainly real and painful. But she had all that, um, all that solitude and celestial evenings, blazing wood fire, music, and actually rampant fun and feasting. She writes about solitude, that polar privacy, a soul admitted to itself. She did not abuse leisure. She was quite the housewife, baked, did gardening, attended to sewing and knitting, and wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters, which I find as fascinating as the poems. She played the piano, walked the dog. Her dog's name was Carlo, large as myself, that my father bought me. She fled from distractions, from conventional society, you know, the chattering classes. She did this in order to develop her imagination, her sixth sense. I see Emily Dickinson as a mystic, living among these orthodox religious institutions and structured belief systems. She needed to be alone to practice her religion. Her niece writes, Once I repeated to Aunt Emily what a neighbor said, that time must pass very slowly for her, who never went anywhere. She flashed back with Browning's line, Time! Why, time was all I wanted! Emily knew who she could talk to. She writes, The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door. The poet's tragedy, if, if it is tragedy, is to love alone. Dickinson writes, Till it has loved, no man or woman can become itself. Like Emily Bronte across the sea, Emily Dickinson is a solo act. She has this angst of an existentialist, and she writes, My favorite of all her lines, I had it done in calligraphy, yes, she writes, It might be lonelier, Without the loneliness. The poet who cannot be heard in the world. You know, the poet for whom there is no audience, no society, must go deep into herself. She writes, this is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. I keep wondering still, it's rattling around in my head. How it is that Mel Gibson has found an audience, a huge audience, that he's riding the zeitgeist, making a fortune. Obviously, uh, the society in which he is matriculating has metastasized into a sadistic soup. <laughs> 
Emily's poems were iconoclastic and the world uh, had no use for that voice in the beginning. Uh, someone actually did publish a few verses in the Boston Christian Register. Uh, a Reverend Brooke Herford read them and said of Emily's poetry, yes, one of the most offensive bits of contemptuous Unitarianism that I have met with. Emily had compared Christ's coming on earth in behalf of the Father in heaven, yes, with John Alden's service in behalf of Miles Standish in the Longfellow poem, you know, <laughs> as a go-between, uh, a marriage broker, right? Emily is quirky, sardonic, irreverent, bold, witty, even comic. She writes, God is a distant, stately lover. <laughs> As D.H. Lawrence would say, yes, I offered them the corpse of my love, the corpse of my love. Among Emily's earthly loves, her sister-in-law Susan is the most selfish and sadistic. Her brother Austin's later love, Mistress Mabel Loomis Todd, is much more sympathetic toward Emily's life and work. Uh, together with Thomas Higginson, Mabel Todd published the first series of the poems in 1891 after Emily's death. Uh, one of the first readers was Alice James, sister of Henry and William. And Alice James writes in her diary in 1892... Quote, it is reassuring to hear the English pronouncement that Emily Dickinson is fifth-rate. They have such a capacity for missing quality. The robust evades them equally with the subtle. <laughs> oh, the poems open the door um, to a wider universe, writes uh, Mabel Todd. Yes, she said that uh, editing the poems helped her with her own pain in life. Um, she says, uh, she quotes Emily Dickinson saying, uh, I was helped as if a kingdom cared. That's Emily's line. Uh, Mabel Todd had to convince Tom Higginson that the poems were not too crude. He told her to classify them A, B, and C, you know. He would look them over. <laughs> In her preface to the poems, she compares them to impressionistic painting and Wagner's music. She discovers the strange cadence and inner rhythms and the spiritual smoke that recalls William Blake. She even discovers Emily's humor, especially in relation to her sister Lavinia, a woman who lived much of the time in what Emily calls, quote, the state of regret. Uh, yes, another footnote here. Emily uh, uh, left a huge pile of correspondence, and most of it was burned by Lavinia. Perhaps she didn't know any better. Oh, dear. I always see Emily Dickinson at Easter time. When the calla lilies are in bloom, humoring her sister Lavinia, and then retreating to the garden of her own mind, she writes, The brain is wider than the sky. It is deeper than the sea. Is just the weight of God, she writes of God's foreplay in a poem which begins, quote, He fumbles at your soul as players at the keys before they drop full music on. 
she goes right on, to imagine the celestial orgasm itself. One imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul. Emily struggled with mutability and death with Eros and Thanatos. Oh, I wish there were some better honor to pay such a wise woman. Let's see. Four lines. She wrote, If I shouldn't be alive when the robins come, give the one in red cravat a memorial crumb. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. Out of Apply. Apprentice APFA Apprenticeship. Apprentice APFA Apprenticeship. Learn radio skills. Have a voice. Play with sound. Mix, edit, and produce. Call 510-848-6767, Application deadline Monday, April 26th at 5 p.m. Visit kpfa.org to download an application. One, two, three, four.